Let's take our Bibles this evening. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going <clears> to <throat> just read from. Excuse me. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to start from verse 11 tonight. Uh, it says in. <clears throat> sorry, we're saying verse 9, sorry. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Let's open tonight with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for the opportunity to be here this evening uh, to minister uh, your word. And Lord, we pray for each of those gathered at home that you'd speak to their hearts this evening. Uh, just uh, teach them, instruct them, uh, instruct us through your word this evening. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give me wisdom and guidance to speak, that it would be your words, that it would be uh, your thoughts this evening. That, Lord, you would empower me through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Lord, enable me to speak, and Lord, we pray that this time would be a time of ref- great blessing and refreshing around your word this evening, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, of course, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Genesis chapter 3, we didn't look at it last week because it was Mother's Day, uh, but last time we were in Genesis chapter 3, we uh, were looking at uh, the fall of man, and we got to the point where we saw Adam and Eve fall into sin. We saw them sin against God by partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so with that act, sin entered into the world and immediately things are different. Immediately things have changed. Verse 7 tells us, it says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Verse 7 says that their eyes are now open. They were open unto good and evil, and, and they, they see their nakedness now, and in their nakedness they see their shame. And so they seek to deal with their shame, the shame of their sin, by sewing fig leaves together and making themselves some clothes. And of course, as we saw, these rudimentary clothes that they made were not sufficient. They couldn't fix the problem. They couldn't restore what was lost because of their sin. The relationship with God had changed. You know, before they sinned, there was freedom to walk and to talk with the Lord, to have a close relationship with Him. There was no fear to stand in God's presence. But now, because of their sin, they're afraid. And so they hide themselves. And we just read that in verse 8. It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and he said unto him, Where art thou? 
And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so their, their whole uh, relationship with God has changed because of this sin. Now they're, they're afraid of God and they, they hide themselves because they're afraid and because of their shame. You know, they're afraid here because they know they've sinned and they know that there's consequences coming. There's consequences to that sin. And in verse 11, we see that the Lord now gives to Adam and Eve uh, an opportunity to confess their sin. It says in verse 11, And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And so verse 11, the Lord really gives them an opportunity here to own up to what they've done, to be honest. You know, God asks Adam, he says, how do, how do you know that you're naked? How, what's changed? You know, and he basically says, he openly says, he says, have you eaten of the tree? He asks him directly. You know, God's not asking these questions here because he wants to find out the answers. You know, God already, already knows the answers. God is omniscient. God has seen all this and he knows everything that's taken place. He knows the answer to the questions. And so rather God is asking these questions here because he's giving Adam and Eve an opportunity. An opportunity to repent. You see, this is Adam's opportunity to now openly confess his sin to God and ask God for forgiveness. You know, sadly... You know, this is not what we see from Adam and Eve. Instead, what we see is that they play the blame game, don't they? They play the blame game. You know, Adam proceeds to blame his wife for giving him the fruit. And then Eve blames the serpents. Verse 12, it says, And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I didn't eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And so neither of them here is willing to acknowledge their, their guilt, their sin. They, they lay the blame on someone else. And Adam, even by implication here, blames God. He says, the woman that thou gavest to be with me. So even, uh, even by implication here, Adam points the finger at God and says, it's your fault, you gave me the woman. Now instead of praising God for his goodness, Adam blames God for his troubles. You know, how quickly sin has taken hold in the heart of men and changed their whole nature and the way they act and respond to God. You know, Adam and Eve were sorry that they, would be, that they had been discovered. They were fearful of the consequences, but there's no indication here that they were repenting of their sin. Instead, they, they seem to try to justify their actions. And so accordingly now, there is no course of action other than for the Lord to initiate punishment for sin, to deal with the sin. And the passage before us in verse 14 through to 19, which is where we want to focus this evening, this passage is commonly being called the curse. The curse. And there are in fact several curses here. There's the curse upon the serpent, then upon the woman, and of course upon the man. Uh, the commentator Morris writes this, he says, As far as the personal aspects of the curse were concerned, God pronounced them in the same chronological order in which the specific acts of sin had been committed, first on Satan, then on Eve, and then on Adam. For Adam and Eve, however, their subjection under the curse was in hope 
of eventual redemption. For Satan, it was final and irrevocable. And so it's the curse that I want us now to focus on this evening. I want us to focus in particular on the curse upon the serpent and Satan this evening. And that's basically as far as we're going to get uh, this evening. And so first of all, we see the curse upon the serpent. The curse upon the serpent. Look at me in verse 14. It says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. In verse 14, we see that the first part of the curse here is directed towards the animal that Satan used as his vessel, the serpents. We're told that the serpent is cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And the curse here is not so much uh, because of uh, direct responsibility, but rather it's a, it's a um, perpetual reminder of uh, the consequences of sin, a perpetual reminder of what happened in the garden. You know, a reminder of that sin and the consequences that resulted from it. I mean, even today when we see the, the serpent, we are reminded of the Garden of Eden and what took place there. And so this curse upon the serpent is really a perpetual reminder for us of all that took place. And the curse in particular pronounced upon the serpent is that it would now crawl upon its belly, eating the dust of the earth. And we says that at the end of verse 14 there, it says, Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And so this is the curse upon the serpent. Now when we looked at the serpent as the vessel used by Satan back in verse 1, uh, we saw that there was something very different about the serpent before the fall. In verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And so we talked about, when we looked at that verse, we looked at it in connection with verse 14, and we talked about how the serpent was obviously different before the fall. You know, he seems to have been able to, to walk upright, so it has limbs of some sort, uh, that possibly even wings, some people believe. It also was able to speak to Eve. I mean, in verse 1, he talks to Eve, and Eve responds to the serpents. And so while we can't be sure exactly of its appearance before the fall, one thing is for sure, in verse 14, the appearance of the serpent is forever changed. The structure of the serpent is now changed so that it must crawl upon its belly. And it's not just this particular serpent, it's the, the species, it's snakes in general. God changes them so that this is now their lot, that they must crawl upon their belly and eat of the dust of the earth. Uh, Barnes writes this, he says, The curse of the serpent lies in a more groveling nature than that of the other land animals. This appears in its going on its belly and eating the dust. Other animals have at least feet to elevate them above the dust. The serpent tribe does not even have feet. Other animals elevate the head in their natural position above the soil. The serpent lays its head naturally on the sod and therefore may be said to eat the dust as the wounded warrior bites the dust in death. And that really is the, the picture here. It's a picture of humiliation. The serpent has been put into this place of a groveling position. 
upon the earth. A groveling position where it must uh, um, crawl upon its belly and it must eat the dust of the earth. It eats the dust in death, the humiliation. And so the serpent is cursed here by God because of its involvement in the fall of men. And as I said, it's a perpetual reminder for us. When we see the serpent, we are reminded of this event here in Genesis chapter 3. Now it's important that we understand here that this judgment upon the serpent by God was fair. It's fair and it's in accordance with the rest of the word of God. There's other places in the word of God where God says that if an animal does harm to a human that they are to be put to death, they are to be dealt with. Genesis chapter 9, let's just turn there. Genesis chapter 9 and, and read verse 5. It says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. God talking to Noah and his sons here, and he says that he will require uh, their blood at the hand of the beast. If the beast um, was to, to harm them, sorry, God required the blood of the beast. He would deal with that animal. In Exodus 21, we see a similar thing. Exodus 21 and verse 28. Just turn over there with me. Exodus 21 and in verse 28 we read, it says, If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be stoned, uh, shall surely be stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. So in Exodus 21, we see a similar thing. If an ox was to harm a human, to kill a human, it was to be stoned to death. And the point is that in the case of the serpent, the harm that the serpent inflicted upon man was far worse than death. It was a, it was a, a harm that was perpetual. It's a moral a harm that's then perpetuated right throughout the human race. And so the judgment from God upon the serpent is in the form of this curse. And it also needs to be noted here that the serpent is not the only animal who suffers under the curse. The whole of the animal kingdom is brought under the curse here because now death has entered into the world. And so all of them now have the curse of death. The serpent is merely cursed above all the rest. And it says that there in verse, uh, verse 15, uh, 14. It says, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. The serpent is merely cursed above all the rest, but they are all cursed because of Adam's sin. They're all part of man's domain, dominion, and Adam's sin, because of his sin, there is now death in the world. And death inflicts everything in that dominion. And so the animals, the serpent in particular, but the animals here come under the curse. We see secondly now this evening the curse upon Satan, the curse upon Satan. Look at me in verse 15. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And although the curse was outwardly pronounced upon the serpent, its real thrust is against the tempter himself. The real thrust of the curse is against Satan. You see, he was the one controlling the the body. He was the one controlling the speech of the serpent. Indeed, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 identifies the devil as being the old serpent. 
He is the old serpent. He is the one responsible. And so the curse really is leveled against him here. And in particular, verse 15, is leveled against Satan. You know, Satan probably believed that he had won a great victory. When he got Eve to partake of the fruit, he believed he gained a victory. When Eve then gave it to Adam and Adam sinned as well, he gained a great victory. Now he'd persuaded them to believe him instead of believing God. He'd persuaded man, the very first man and woman, to believe his words and disobey God's words. And so it seemed that Satan had accomplished a great victory against God. Not only that, you know, he'd led a rebellion in heaven. You know, and he'd taken with him a host of angels. And now as he's come to earth, he's tempted God's special creation, mankind created in the image of God, and they've rebelled as well. And so when you put it all together, it seems like Satan has had a great victory, hasn't he? Not only in heaven, but now also upon the earth. But now in verse 15, we see the Lord declare a prophecy against Satan. It says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We see a prophecy against Satan. In this verse, the Lord makes it clear that ultimately, Satan will be completely and utterly defeated. Now these words in Genesis 3 verse 15 have been called the Protevangelium. In other words, the first gospel. The first gospel. And that's because here we have the very first announcement of the coming Redeemer. The very first announcement in the Word of God. And as we read this verse, Genesis 3.15, it is, it is obvious that it's speaking about much more than just the physical enmity that exists between man and serpents. I mean, that is true. You know, there is, a, there is an enmity between serpents and man. We have this fear between us. There is an enmity that exists. But the verse is speaking about much more than that. These words are a prophecy looking forward to the time when Satan will be completely crushed beneath the feet of the woman's triumphant seed. And of this verse, Weasby writes this, he says, To God's old covenant people, this verse was a beacon of hope. To Satan, it was God's declaration of war, climaxing in his condemnation. And to Eve, it was the assurance that she was forgiven and that God would use a woman to bring the Redeemer into the world. So verse 15 is such an important verse. It's a wonderful verse. There's so much uh, meaning and depth here in Genesis 3, verse 15. And we're just going to consider it in two parts tonight. The first part is the conflict. The conflict. Verse 15 begins, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. <clears throat> the verse begins with God proclaiming that there will be enmity, there will be conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And the question that must be answered here is who or what is meant by the seed of both the woman and of Satan? What's this term seed referring to? But when we look at the Word of God, the term seed is used to speak about someone's offspring. 
And in particular here, it's referring to the spiritual offspring of both. And so we're told here of a conflict, a conflict that would exist between the spiritual offspring of Satan and the spiritual offspring of the woman. That's the the first meaning here, if you like. There is a conflict that will exist right throughout the ages between the, the spiritual offspring of the woman and of Satan. Now specifically, Satan's seed consists of those who knowingly and willfully set themselves against God. Those who knowingly and willfully reject the truth, they oppose the truth. And they depend upon their own righteousness, upon themselves. You know, the Pharisees in the New Testament are a good example of this. They were called by Christ himself, the children of the devil. Turn over me to John chapter 8 and verse 44. John chapter 8. John 8 verse 44, it says, Ye are of your father, the devil. And the last of your father ye will do, he was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. The verse starts out, Ye are of your father, the devil. Christ said that they were the children of the devil. They are the seed of Satan. They are his offspring. He was their father. Now Christ reserved this title here for those who actively opposed him and the truth. And he said that they were the, the children of the devil. And then on the other hand, you have the seed of the woman. Referring in the first place here to those who are the children of God. Those who are brought into God's family through faith. Those who have been born again. And in the New Testament, now, 1 John chapter 3 is a wonderful passage concerning this. Let's just turn over there, 1 John 3. <clears throat> 1 John 3, verse 1, I'm sure we know these verses well. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, and of course we go to John... Uh, uh, John's Gospel as well, we see the same thing, John chapter 3. The whole idea that we are born again into God's family, we are made the children of God, the sons of God. And so we have these two sides, we have the seed of the woman and we have the seed of Satan. We have the children of the devil, we have the children of God. And this conflict that exists between both. And so this prophecy here in verse 15, first of all, foretells of this ongoing, age-long conflict that exists between the children of God and the children of the devil. You know, it's a conflict that was immediately seen and epitomized, if you like, in Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, and we know the story well, we're not going to go there and read it, but in Genesis chapter 4, we know Cain rose up and killed his brother, slew his own brother Abel. In 1 John chapter 3, John tells us that Cain was of that wicked one. Just go there, hopefully you're still there. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. 1 John 3 verse 11 says, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him. 
because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain was of that wicked one. In other words, he was a child of the devil. He was one of his seed. And he slew his brother. He rose up and killed Abel. Why? Because Abel was righteous before God. Abel was a child of God. And so in these two sons, Cain and Abel, we have epitomized this conflict between the children of God and the children of the devil. And this conflict has continued right throughout history. And it will continue until the end of the age. In Matthew 13, Christ speaks about this age-long conflict. Let's go there, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 37. Matthew 13, verse 37, it says, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Christ talks about these age-long conflicts. The wheat and the tares. And at the end of the age, the tares will be gathered and burned in the fire. The children of the devil will lose the conflict. And God will be victorious. And so that is the the first meaning we see here with the seed. It's the the seed of the devil, it's the children of the devil and the children of God. This age-long conflict. You know, there's obviously another meaning here. In addition to this plural and corporate meaning of the two seeds, there's also one primary seed of the serpent or Satan. And there's also one primary seed of... Of the woman. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, we are told of the son of perdition. Let's go there, 2 Thessalonians 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that the man sorry, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of Perdition. The son of perdition there, of course, is the Antichrist. The Antichrist who will come into the world during the tribulation. And he will be given power and authority by Satan himself. Revelation 13 and verse 2 says, And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And so the primary seed, if you like, of the devil is the Antichrist. And the primary seed of the woman, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament proclaims the wonderful truth of the virgin birth, which makes Christ uniquely the seed of the woman. I know we know it well, but let's go to Matthew chapter 1. And let's just read the passage there. Matthew chapter 1. This is why the virgin birth is is so important. It means that he is the seed of the woman. He doesn't have imputed sin from a human father. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. 
Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We know the verse as well. Mary, the virgin conceived of the Holy Ghost. Christ was born, Christ the, the Emmanuel, God with us. Perfect man and perfect God. Fully man, fully God. Yet without sin, because he was of the seed of the woman. And so therefore Christ, because he's uniquely of the seed of the woman, Christ is able to fulfill the second part of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So let's go back there and we see now, secondly, the promise. We've looked at the conflict, now we see the promise. Verse 15 It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The last part of the verse here tells us that this promised seed, who we know to be Christ, this promised seed, would have his heel bruised by Satan, but ultimately he would bruise the head of Satan. That's what it says there. It shall bruise, in other words, the seed of the woman shall bruise thy head, talking about Satan. Okay, so Christ isn't going to bruise the, the head of the, the seed of Satan. No, Christ is going to bruise Satan himself. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. When it says bruise here, bruise the head of Satan, it's saying that Christ would crush his head. That's the whole idea, is they would crush Satan's head had complete and final defeats. Now, as we said, we have the benefit of knowing who the promised seed is. We read Genesis 3.15 and we know the promised seed, the seed of the woman, is Christ. You know, when this promise was made, Satan was left in the dark as to who and, and when this would occur. You know, Eve, initially, she thought it might be her firstborn son. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. The name Cain basically means I've got him. Here he is. You see, it seems that Eve, she thought that he was the promised seed. She thought he was the one to defeat Satan, to fulfill Genesis 3.15. And you know, throughout the centuries, Satan continued to attack all who were in the promised line. Seeking to disrupt God's plan declared to us here in Genesis 3.15. Now he attacked Noah, attacked Abraham, Jacob, David. You know, you go right through the whole Israelite nation in general. Satan attacked them. Why? Because Satan was trying to disrupt the promised line in a, in a vain attempt to stop this promise. To stop this from coming to fruition. Genesis 3.15. You know, it doesn't matter what Satan tried... God was in control. You see, in God's perfect timing, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born of a woman and fulfill this promise. Galatians chapter 4, let's just go there. Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In God's perfect timing, He sent His Son to be made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem us. 
There was nothing Satan could do to stop this promise from happening. Stop this prophecy from being fulfilled. There was nothing he could do to stop God's plan of redemption. You know, this promise was perfectly fulfilled as Christ came to earth and he went to the cross, dying in our place. You see, as Christ hung on the cross, suffered, bled and died for us, Satan bruised his heel, wounded him. Isaiah 53 in verse 5 declares that he was bruised for our iniquities. Christ was bruised. But three days later, Christ rose triumphant over sin, triumphant over death and over the grave, and Satan was defeated. The price for redemption was paid, and through Christ, we are now able to have eternal life. See, in Adam we were all made sinners, but in Christ we're now all able to be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, just quickly turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam we all died. Adam was our representative. We all became sinners, but in Christ we're all made alive. Because of what Christ did there on the cross when he defeated Satan. You know, indeed the words of Genesis 3, verse 15, are fulfilled at the cross. As Christ was bruised for our iniquities, but he rose victorious, defeating Satan and purchasing our redemption. You know, in addition to that, the Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation that there is a day coming when Christ will crush Satan's head. Revelation 20 and verse 10. Let's just quickly turn there. Last verse this evening. Revelation 20. Revelation 20 and verse 10. It says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil will be cast into the lake of fire, the day is coming. At the end of the millennial reign, Satan will be cast in the lake of fire. He will spend all eternity there. God's promise declared way back in Genesis 3.15 will finally be completely fulfilled. Satan will be crushed. Fully defeated. You see, Satan seemed to have won a great victory, didn't he? In Genesis 3, at the start, with the fall of man, he seemed to have won a, a great victory. But God knew what he was doing all along. God knew what he was doing. You know, God's eternal plan was not set back when Adam and Eve sinned. You know, there wasn't all of a sudden a hurdle, an obstacle in the way. Our omniscient God was in complete control. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin. And God already knew what he would do about it. God already had in place this wonderful plan of redemption. And he declares it for us right here in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ would come. And he would be bruised by Satan, but he would crush the head of Satan. He would rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And praise God, we have salvation because of Christ, the seed of the woman. Let's close tonight in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even... Here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we can already see your plan. Your plan of salvation. 
Lord, nothing happens that you're not aware of. Nothing happens, Lord, that is outside of your, your domain, Lord. You are in complete control. And Lord, when Satan, uh, Lord, tempted Adam and Eve and they fell into sin, Lord, you already had the plan of redemption. And we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that this evening we would rejoice in the knowledge that you are an omniscient, great God, that you are in control. And may we remember that in our daily lives, Lord, uh, as we, we go about our business. Remember that you are on the throne. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.